This morning, we are finally going to pick back up in our verse-by-verse study of the New Testament. We finished the book of 1 Timothy back in November, but instead of continuing along into 2 Timothy, I decided to do a special message for Thanksgiving and then a special Advent series during the month of December to prepare our hearts for Christmas. And then last week, we did another special message as a way to wrap up the 2023 year and to look forward to the new year, what God would have for us. Uh, And so... uh, you know, we looked at really the first century church as a model for us and how, you know, they continued steadfastly in, in four main things, the apostles' doctrine, uh, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. And then they left the results in the Lord's hands. And I trust that as we follow in that example, um, that God will take care of the rest. You know, that as we make an emphasis to study God's word and to spend time in fellowship and prayer and breaking bread, and uh, God will do great things. So with the new year today, we're going to put those things into practice. We're going to get back to our systematic study of God's word, the apostles' doctrine. We're going to spend some time together in prayer and fellowship, and we're even going to set aside a few minutes at the conclusion of our service this morning to partake of the breaking of bread and coming together to the communion table. So Got a lot to get through. Uh, if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open it up to the book of 2 Timothy. This morning's going to be a little different from our normal verse-by-verse study in that we're going to take some time to lay out some of the background information pertaining to the book of 2 Timothy. This is something we often do when starting a new book study. We like to ask the important who, what, when, where, why, and how questions pertaining to the book that we might understand the overall context, the setting, the circumstances involved in the writing of these books. Uh, If you're here this morning, you're reading from a study Bible. you got one of them really thick study Bibles. Uh, Your Bible will probably have an introduction to the book detailing some of the information that we're going to cover this morning. Uh, The information will be based upon biblical support found within the book of 2 Timothy, but also from uh, other books of the Bible, even some historical records that help us understand really all that's happening when this book was first penned. I believe understanding the context of a book and the background to it will help us better understand and better apply God's word to our own hearts and lives and the circumstances and situations we find ourselves going through day by day. You know, the book of 2 Timothy is a very important and very intimate letter. It is often lumped together with 1 Timothy and Titus as one of the pastoral epistles. Okay, these three books are linked together amongst all the other New Testament writings as letters that were unique in their address to two men that served as pastors of local churches. As we noted in our study of 1 Timothy, Timothy, he served as a pastor in the city of Ephesus, and Titus served as a pastor on the island of Crete. And while these books have a lot of great content for pastors, they shouldn't be considered as letters simply for pastors and church leadership. While these letters are addressed to pastors, they definitely are letters that were meant for the whole church to read from and to grow from. The truth in these letters is vital to the whole church, and it's important that we as a church understand what these books teach us. Uh, And so the book of 2 Timothy itself, it does not contain as much specific instructions for church leaders as the book of 1 Timothy and the book of Titus do. 2 Timothy is the most personal of the pastoral epistles. Some say the most personal of all of Paul's writings, and some even say the most personable letter in all of the entire New Testament. Uh, It really is a self-reflection on the life of Paul and what God has brought him through in the ministry. And it is a letter to encourage, warn, and instruct 
Timothy as the man Paul is entrusting with the continuation of the gospel. And so as we read through and study it, we're going to hear just really the heart of Paul, uh, the love and the affection that he has for the Lord, the love and the affection that he has for the church, the love and affection he has for Timothy himself and for the gospel message. And I hope that you guys are really blessed and excited uh, to start this study with me. I, I know that I'm excited to get into it. So with that, let's go ahead and read the opening to the letter found in the first two verses. Again, because we're going to be doing an overview of the book and because we're going to set aside time for communion, we're only going to get into the first two verses. It's very much an introduction today. Uh, hopefully you guys are okay with that. Let's go ahead and rise to our feet in honor of God and his word. The title of our study this morning is going to be A Beloved Son. Okay, A Beloved Son. Son, I'm going to read the introduction to this letter in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to stop right there. Father, thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity to start a new study, to get into your word and just go verse by verse and allow it just to minister to our hearts. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your word that tells us that your word will go forth and accomplish that which you set it uh, forth to do. And so, Lord, we uh, come ready to uh, allow you to do the work you desire to do this morning. Lead us and guide us through this study, not just this morning, Lord, but really for this entire book. I pray that your spirit's just continual leading and blessing uh, upon our study, that we might understand in context the book of 2 Timothy, but we also might understand how the principles and the truths found within uh, 2 Timothy, the promises that are contained within it, Lord, how they apply to us today as well. And so lead us and guide us through your word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, I always like to start with easy questions when I do these overviews, and I think the easiest questions to answer in regards to the who, why, what, when, where, how uh, type questions is who. Um, and so we're going to start with an easy one. Who wrote the book of 2 Timothy? Uh, the answer is fairly easy uh, to figure out because the author identifies himself in the very first verse of the book. We read it already in our text. The author of this book is, of course, Paul the Apostle. And we'll look at Paul and who he was more in depth once we get to our verse-by-verse -verse study. But for now, we'll simply note that Paul's the author of this letter. Another easy question we can ask regarding who is to whom was the book written? Who was Paul writing to as he put this letter together? Again, the answer to this one's quite simple. It's found in our text as we read this morning in verse 2. Paul was writing to a man by the name of Timothy. You may recall from our study of 1 Timothy that Timothy was a pastor that was serving the church in the city of Ephesus. And it would appear that when Paul wrote this letter, that that was still the case. Timothy was still serving in the city of Ephesus as the pastor of the church there. And we'll get more into Timothy and who he was and God's story about his life later in our study. Now, a very important detail pertaining to this particular letter revolves around the time of the writing of this letter. And so we want to ask, when was this letter written? 
Now, this isn't nearly as easy to answer as the first two questions about who wrote the book and who the letter was being sent to. Paul doesn't give us a date uh, in the opening verses, really uh, throughout the whole book, but we don't get any dates of any kind to go off of. But uh, when we looked at the book of 1 Timothy, we suggested and uh, believed that it was most likely written around the year 63 AD, so that's 1 Timothy. And we can tell from the details found within this book that things have drastically changed for Paul from the time of his writing his first letter to Timothy and the timing of his second letter to Timothy. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy, he did so as a free man, traveling around, visiting different churches, and continuing the spread of the gospel message. He had visited Ephesus, and he left Timothy there in Ephesus to pastor the church while he went on ahead to Macedonia. We looked at that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. According to Titus, we read of Paul's plans to winter in a place called Nicopolis. In this letter of 2 Timothy, he mentions some of his travels to various places like Miletus, Troas, and Corinth. And it was during this traveling, during this going around and spreading the gospel, uh, that he um, first wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, But as we'll see, something drastically changed for Paul. He writes the book of 2 Timothy not as a free man. But as a prisoner, he mentions being in chains in chapter 1, verse 16. Now, we can tell from the description of Paul's situation in 2 Timothy that it is not referring to the first time that he was imprisoned in Rome as he awaited his trial. If you remember the book of Acts, uh, and you ever read through the book of Acts, we know that his imprisonment that first go around in Rome was more like a house arrest. He lived in a rented house in relative comfort under Roman guard, but he was also able to welcome numerous visitors, uh, excuse me, visitors, as is recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 23, a number of people came to him, and uh, he was able to preach to them and explain to them more thoroughly the, the gospel message. He enjoyed the many privileges that came with being a Roman citizen. Now, as you read through the book of Acts, we get the sense that Paul expected to be released. And history seems to suggest that's exactly what happened. He was released. However, as we read the details found in 2 Timothy, Paul is in a much different setting. He seems to be located in a a dark, damp, dirty dungeon, a, a dungeon, excuse me, a cold dungeon. Instead of awaiting a fair trial before Caesar as a privileged Roman citizen, we get the sense that he is awaiting his own death as a condemned criminal. There does not seem to be any hope of him being released or or this imprisonment really ending in anything other than his own death. And so these imprisonments are much different. The the first time he was in Rome and imprisoned and the second time he's in Roman prison. And that's why most Bible scholars all agree that Paul's imprisonments were two separate ones, that when he talks about being in prison in 2 Timothy, it's different from when he was first sent to trial in Rome. And based upon the evidence found in the pastoral epistles and taking into account the different places he was said to have visited, most people put the writing of the book of 2 Timothy around the year 67 AD, uh, about three to four years after the book of 1 Timothy. Now, all this talk about imprisonment brings up a good question regarding where. From where did Paul write the book? Uh, Well, as I already mentioned, Paul wrote this letter as a prisoner. In verse 17 of the opening chapter tells us that he was a prisoner in Rome. We're told of a certain Christian man named Onesiphorus who sought out Paul in Rome and found him. Uh, He was not ashamed of his chains. 
Now, it's very important that we understand what is going on in regard to the world scene at this time as it plays a significant role in how things play out for Paul. And so we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson here. I'm not a history buff, but I can look up information just as good as the best, the best of, uh, of them. And so uh, in looking up uh, different history, we, we understand that there's a very important thing that's taking place at this time. Okay. Back in the year 54 AD, okay, the fifth Roman emperor came into power at the ripe old age of 16. Okay, his name was Nero. And the first few years of Nero's reign were somewhat peaceful and seemed to give promise of a bright future. His mother, Agrippina, was very helpful in advising him through those early years. When Paul appealed to Caesar in the book of Acts, and he had his case eventually heard by Caesar, it was heard by Caesar Nero. And by all accounts, things seemed fine. Paul was given a fair trial. He was set free by Nero. This was around the year 62 AD when Paul was set free. But something happened soon after that drastically changed Nero. In the year 62 AD, Nero married a woman by the name of Papia Sabina, and she was said to be a terrible influence upon him. After his marriage, Nero became brutal and ruthless, killing his own mother uh, because she was advising against some of the things his wife was telling him to do. Uh, he killed his chief advisors, Seneca and Ber and anyone else who got in his way or didn't see things the way that he saw them. Nero's thirst for publicity pushed him into excessive acts of decadence, including chariot races, combat between gladiators, and the gory spectacle of prisoners thrown to wild beasts as a form of public entertainment. Okay? In the year 64 AD... The great fire of Rome destroyed a large part of Rome, and many suspected Nero of ordering the fire himself in order to make room for a new palace. When the fire got out of hand, caused way more damage than he seemingly hoped for, Nero churned against the Christians. Okay? Christians uh, were accused of burning down Rome. And when this happened, Christians and Christianity became identified as a religio elicito, an illegal or illegitimate religion. And persecution against those who professed Christ became quite severe rather quickly. Nero began targeting Christians for torture, for executions, Later on, using the Colosseum for entertainment, throwing Christians to the wild animals, to lions, and to see um, how long they could last. Okay? The historian uh, Tacitus records some of the types of persecution the church faced during his time frame. He writes, their death was made a matter of sport. They were covered in wild beast skins and torn to pieces by dogs or were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as human tortures by night. Tacitus even states that Nero himself offered his gardens for this particular spectacle of lighting people on Christians on fire as human torches. And it was during this time frame Okay, that Paul was taken as prisoner. He was imprisoned in what is known as the Mamertine Dungeon, which was located in the center of Rome near the Forum. The Mamertine Dungeon was first built as part of a cistern system back in the 7th century BC, which was connected to the sewer uh, system of the city. It was later used as a dungeon to keep criminals as they awaited their execution. Uh, 
You see, isolated imprisonment wasn't something that was common in the Roman Empire during this day. People wouldn't be confined to long lengths of jail time in a cell. Like today, we, someone might have 25 years to life of just sitting in jail. That wasn't how they did things back then. Okay? Often convicted criminals would do hard labor out and about at mills and mines or quarries and would be held in prison camps while not working. The Mamertine dungeon was basically a holding cell for those who had been sentenced to death. And it was a cold dark, damp, and dirty dungeon that went several layers deep into the ground. Secular historical records indicate that this is the place where not only Paul was kept as he awaited his execution, but also Peter, who was also executed under the rule and reign of Nero during the same time frame. It's believed that just a few months after writing this letter to Timothy, according to tradition, Paul was beheaded on the Ostian Way just outside of Rome. This was believed to occur shortly before Nero's own death by suicide. In 68 AD, just as the Roman Senate was declaring Nero an enemy of the people because of the atrocities he had committed, Nero committed suicide. But before doing so, he had killed uh, by order beheading the Apostle Paul. And so... The time frame of this writing and the, the current events is important to keep in mind when reading through this book. Paul writes from basically death row. He has been sentenced to death. He knows that his time on earth is coming to an end. Persecution against Christians is rampant. And as he writes to Timothy, we hear and understand his great concern for Timothy and his great concern for the church as a whole in the perilous times that they live in and no doubt will continue to see um, get grow worse and worse. Okay. So this leads us to a great why question. Why did Paul write this letter to Timothy? We could ask what was the purpose of Paul's writing. Paul wrote this letter, I think, for a couple of reasons. For one, he wrote this letter because he was lonely, and he desperately longed to see Timothy before he passed from his life, from this life to the next. In 2 Timothy 4, we'll read uh, in verse 9, he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. And, and the books, especially the parchments. He tells Timothy at the end of the letter, do your utmost to come before winter. Okay? Paul knew that if Timothy didn't come before winter, that he would not see him. Okay? Like if you can't leave before winter, you have to wait through the winter to travel. You don't go till spring. By that time, he knew it would be far too late. And so he says, do your utmost to come before winter. Paul felt deserted. He felt alone. He says so in the first chapter when he mentions how all those in Asia have turned away from him. And so in writing to Timothy, he's asking him to come. Come quickly to me so that he can see him one last time and enjoy the presence of his great friend, companion, and true son in the faith. Paul also wrote because he was concerned about the persecution and difficulties that Timothy and the church would have to face. Timothy was going to face quite a, uh, a few challenges, and Paul wanted to write to Timothy in order to remind him of his need to endure all these different challenges, to continue in the faith. He wanted to make sure that Timothy helped equip and prepare the church for the same. But I believe most of all, if we're just going to give one answer for this, why uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, I believe it was to inspire, challenge, and motivate Timothy to carry on the gospel ministry. 
Paul knew that his time was up. It was time for someone else to pick up the mantle and continue the work of the ministry. Paul looked to Timothy as one of the new great leaders of the church. He had poured so much into Timothy. He had taught him and discipled him, mentored him, traveled around the world with him, bringing the gospel to new places and new people together. Paul knew that Timothy was the man whom God would use to carry on the mission. This letter was in many ways the passing of the baton, from one great man of God who had run his race and finished his leg and was now needing to pass the baton onto the next great man of God who would run with the same diligence, perseverance, dedication, and resolve as Paul the Apostle had done. And Paul could think of no better person to pass the baton on to other than Timothy. And this letter is Paul's passing of the baton, a transfer of responsibility to Timothy so that he can carry on the gospel message and spread the love of Jesus Christ. Another great question to ask in regard to this book is what the main theme of the book is. If I was to pick a main theme, um, I would say the main theme of the book is perseverance in the face of opposition. Both Paul and Timothy were facing different forms of opposition. Both understood the need to persevere and to continue on. Paul was facing the reality of his quickly approaching execution within the, um, well, because of his faith in Christ. Timothy, as we noted in our study of 1 Timothy, he was dealing with opposition within the church from false teachers. Paul instructs Timothy to anticipate growing opposition, exhorts him to stay the course, to remember the calling upon his life and his responsibility as a steward of the mysteries of God. He reminds him of his giftings and exhorts him to use them, and he reminds him of the importance of the word of God and faithfully teaching it to the church. Times are going to get tough for Timothy, and he's going to have to rely upon the Lord and the resources God has given to him to combat this ever-growing opposition. And if I were to pick a key verse or a key section of verses that goes along with this overall theme of the book, I would say that 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 fits the bill. I'll read it to you. It says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus all scripture is given by inspiration of God it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those verses really sum up that need for Timothy to stick to the word of God, to teach the word of God, to pour into his people that they may be complete and equipped for every good work that God intends for them. One last question we can ask uh, is a how question. How is the book of 2 Timothy outlined or divided up? You could do it a couple different ways, but uh, one outline that I like could be done by taking each chapter as a main appeal from Paul to Timothy. Four chapters, okay? Uh, chapter one is the pastoral appeal in which Paul reminds Timothy of his calling to the ministry, of the responsibilities and privileges that go with it. Chapter 2 is the practical appeal in which Paul seeks to solve some of the young minister's problems, his persecution for the sake of the gospel, false teachers, church difficulties. Chapter 3, Paul uses the prophetic appeal, uh, explaining the course of events and the importance of holding fast to the word as he believes the persecution will only increase and uh, perilous times will grow worse. Finally, chapter 4 gives the personal appeal from the heart of the uh, aged apostle Paul urging Timothy to remain true to the gospel and for him to, in whatever way possible, come to be with him, to see him one last time. So, 
With all that background information overview, let's dive into our introductory verses here. One and two, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here in the opening two verses, we're introduced to two people, Paul and Timothy. Uh, We'll take a look at Paul first, what it says about him. Paul opens up the letter identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle simply means a delegate or a messenger or an ambassador, one who is sent out on a mission. And Paul's story is an interesting one. The start of his service to God started while he was on a mission but not one you would think of a man of God uh, and proclaimer of the gospel to be upon. Uh, Paul's story actually starts out with him being on a mission uh, under the name, a different name. Uh, It was under the name of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was zealous for the Lord, and he despised Christians whom he believed were perverting the way of the Lord. Saul was on a mission to hunt down and persecute Christians. He would find them. He would beat them. He would incarcerate them, and he would even oversee some of their executions. It was on the road to Damascus when Saul was on the hunt for Christians that God came and found him. In Acts chapter 9, we read of his incredible encounter and transformation when Jesus Christ came to him in this bright light, and he spoke to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul asked the voice uh, that was speaking to him who he was, and Jesus replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And it was in that moment Saul surrendered his life to the Lord, and he asked him, Lord, what do you want me to do? And God would instruct him to go into the nearby city, seek out a man that would heal his eyes that he had been blinded by the light from. And uh, after meeting with this man, Being prayed for, Paul immediately preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Paul had a fire inside him to preach the gospel, but it would take some time before God would ultimately lead him to the place where he would become known as Paul the Apostle. God did ultimately send him out on new missions, sending him out to places throughout the Roman Empire, sharing the love of Christ with as many as possible, specifically focusing upon sharing with Gentiles of all people, even though he was a Pharisee of Pharisee and he really had a heart for the Jews, God said, no, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Paul became known as the apostle to the Gentiles. God used him in an incredible way. And the account of Paul the apostle is an encouraging one because it depicts the power of the gospel to radically change the life of a person. And the same power is still active today. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to completely and radically change lives. Paul went from being a persecutor of the church to becoming a preacher to the church, one who was a hater of the truth to becoming a proclaimer of the truth. And if God can do that for Paul, then we have to understand that there's hope for each and every one of us. If God could take someone like Saul of Tarsus and touch his life so radically and completely change him into a new person, into Paul the Apostle, well, then there's hope for each and every one of us. No matter what our past, no matter what we've been through or who we used to be in Christ, we are a new creation, and he can radically change and transform our lives to use them for his glory and for his kingdom. All we have to do is be open to the Lord, open to him touching our lives and softening our hearts to all that he desires to do in us and through us, and we too can be used mightily for his kingdom.
Paul also states how he was an apostle by the will of God. God, uh, it was God's will that Paul be an apostle. Paul was not an apostle because he was picked by some group of men to be an apostle. He didn't win a popularity contest or get voted in. He wasn't given the position by other apostles. Paul's apostleship came straight from the will of God, not the will of any man. Paul was an apostle, but not all are called to be an apostle by the will of God. Not all are apostles, not all are prophets, not all are evangelists, not all are pastors, not all are teachers. Some are, but not all. You know, I'm reminded of the truth that God calls us as men and women to all sorts of various vocations and callings in life. Right? And whatever God has called you to be, the important thing is that you be what you are by the will of God. Right? And I'm reminded of Romans 12 and the exhortation Paul gave to the church in Rome. He states, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A lot of people want to know, I'm not really sure what God's will is for my life. Listen, if you want to know what God's good and acceptable and perfect will of God is for your life, Follow Paul's exhortation there in Romans chapter 12. Okay? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do these things and you'll be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for your life. Well, Paul also mentions here the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. This is significant that Paul writes this. He's basically on his deathbed as he writes this. And he's focused upon the promise of life that he has in Christ Jesus. I believe this is speaking about promise of eternal life. For life here on earth isn't promised to anyone. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell, make profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. However, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ do have a promise of eternal life. Right? Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. John writes in 1 John chapter 5, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. As Paul wrote this letter, knowing that his time on earth was drawing to an end, he comforted himself and he wrote of the promise that he had of eternal life in Christ. Paul knew that death was not the end. He could write with joy in his heart, knowing that await, what awaited him on the other side. As believers, death is not the end. It is simply a glorious beginning to our eternal life with God in heaven. And so we do not need to fear death. Death is a graduation. It is a promotion from our life here on earth to our eternal life in heaven, which is especially important of promise when speaking about a church that's experiencing the type of persecution that they were going through. So be reminded of that promise of life we have in Christ. It was so important. Well, that was Paul. Let's turn our attention to the other person mentioned here in our opening verse. It's the young man by the name of Timothy. The name Timothy in the Greek is a compound word. It's the word Timotheos. Timae means Honor, respect, reverence, or esteem. Theos, or theos, means God. 
And so putting them together, we understand that Timothy's name means honoring God or one who honors God. Timothy's name was more than likely greatly influenced by his mother and grandmother, who were also mentioned in the Bible. Timothy's mother was named Eunice. The scripture tells us that she was a Jewish woman who believed in the Lord. Timothy's grandmother was named Lois, and she too was a genuine believer in the Lord. Timothy was raised to know the scriptures from childhood. No doubt both Lois and Eunice played an intricate part in his upbringing, pouring into him the scriptures that he may fear the Lord and walk with him all of his days. Interestingly, we also note in Acts 16, where we are told about Timothy's mother being a Jewish believer, we're also told that his father was not Jewish, but Greek. Uh, And many presume that Timothy's father was not a believer because of his Greek heritage and the fact that nothing else is mentioned about him in the scriptures. Some even speculate that perhaps Timothy's father had passed during his upbringing at a young age, or simply that he wasn't around by the time that he was introduced to Paul. And this may have played an important part in the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Uh, In the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul referred to Timothy as a true son in the faith. There was a deep bond between Paul and Timothy. Paul treated Timothy like a, a son, a true son, someone he had helped raise up someone he had helped train and and prepare for the ministry. But here at the end of his life, I love how Paul doesn't refer to him as the same thing. He doesn't say, Timothy, a true son in the faith, like he did in 1 Timothy. He says here, Timothy, a beloved son. Now, this particular use of words is very telling of the kind of love and relationship Paul had for uh, and with Timothy. Because the phrase beloved son is only used nine times in all of the New Testament. And every other time that it is used outside of here in 2 Timothy, it is used to describe God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. And we see really the significance in Paul using this phrase. It was as if he was likening his relationship to Timothy to that of the relationship between God the Father and his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to do his Father's will. God loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. Jesus Christ was all about doing his Father's business. He was completely dedicated to doing his Father's will. They worked hand in hand, always working toward fulfilling God's plans. And it would seem that this is how Paul viewed his relationship with Timothy. They loved each other deeply, and they were all about fulfilling the mission. Timothy faithfully served Paul and was there to do whatever Paul needed him to do, completely submitted, yielded to to God's leading and the calling upon Paul's life as the apostle to the Gentiles, following with him and supporting him and, you know, hey, you need me to go here? Great. You need me to go there? Great. And he just being sent to all these different places. Timothy was there to see God's will accomplished. And it was a powerful expression and association for Paul to use in describing his relationship to Timothy to see that that was the kind of bond and the kind of um, love that they had for each other. The last thing that we note about Timothy are the blessings that Paul shared with Timothy. Paul shared three blessings with Timothy, extending to him the grace, mercy, and peace that comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, as we've looked at many times, is God's unearned, unmerited favor. It's the Greek word charis. Now, when it comes to grace, I think most of us realize and understand that our salvation and our place in heaven is based upon the grace of God. We're saved by grace through faith, right? Most people say, yeah, we got that. But what we sometimes fail to remember is that grace isn't just needed for our salvation. You see, grace is needed for everything in life. 
Okay, we are dependent upon the grace of God for everything in this life. Titus 2 tells us that it's only by the grace of God that we can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Acts 20 um, says that it's God's grace that builds us up and edifies us. Romans 1.5 says that it's by the grace that we live obedient lives of faith. Romans 5.2 says it's the grace of God that causes us to stand in our faith. 2 Corinthians tells us that it's the grace of God that causes us to abound in thanksgiving to the glory of God. The author of Hebrews states that it's by grace that we're able to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You see, we need God's grace for everything. Okay? And God's grace is made available to us through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And we can praise God for that. Everything that we need is available in and through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The next thing that Paul mentions is mercy. God's mercy is the word, uh, is the word eleos. It speaks of compassion and pity. We often say that grace is getting what you don't deserve. And justice is getting what you do deserve. But mercy is not getting what you do deserve. God's mercy is upon us as he is patient with us. He is long-suffering and compassionate toward us, not giving to us what we deserve. We deserve death. We deserve the penalty of our sins. Because of our faith in Christ, his mercy is upon us, and we don't get what we deserve. God's mercy protects us from the penalty of our sins. And I praise God for his grace and for his mercy, for getting what I don't deserve and for not getting what I do deserve. Lastly, Paul mentions the peace of God. This speaks of the rest and uh, safety that we have in Christ. Peace comes through Jesus Christ. He is our source of peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Not only does peace come through Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. That's what it says, for he himself is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. You see, the peace of God is only found in and through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You won't find it any other place. Many today are in need of the peace of God. They are searching for it, thinking that they will acquire it once they get certain things. They think that they'll have peace in life once they get that promotion or once they move to that new location or once they get that new job or once they get married or once they have children or once the children move out. Uh, you, you see, the world looks for and longs for peace and thinks that if you know, it'll eventually come if they can just hold on long enough. But you will never find the kind of peace that satisfies a longing heart until you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. For God's peace can only be found in an intimate relationship with him. And so may we all enjoy the grace, the mercy, and the peace of God throughout all our days. Amen.